Welcome to Northwoods Distilled, where each episode we visit one community in the Northwoods region of the United States. We cover the history of the area, the local events, sites, and small businesses, as well as local cuisine, restaurants, and beverages. Our goal here is to encourage exploration, recreation, and tourism in the region while helping the many small businesses in the area grow and thrive. This is episode number four, Ocano County. I'm Nick Prowza. And I'm Dan Altos. Thank you for joining us this month, where we are going to be talking about Ocanto County, which, depending on where you live in Wisconsin, is up north. The further south you go in Wisconsin, typically the further south up north is. But we're getting into the region here where it's it's pretty much up north for most people. And very popular for people that live in the Green Bay area. A lot of people have cabins up in that area. And Dan and I have both spent a decent amount of time up there. And so we are going to dive in. Dan, I don't know if you want to start out with a little about the geography of the area and, and kind of where it's located like we usually do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about this. Ocano County is just to the north of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so it also juts out to the northwest. And, and you'll see that while Ocanto, the city, is right along the lake and just north of Green Bay, the county veers out to the northwest all the way on its on its northwestern boundaries near Townsend and Mountain and some of those areas. And so it's a very narrow, kind of jagged county as it as it goes north and west. But there's a lot of communities enclosed within that, and, and we kind of talk about many of them because Ocano County is an area filled with smaller communities instead of having one big city like we've talked about in some of the others. Obviously, in the Keweenaw Peninsula, you've got Houghton. When we talked about Sheboygan County, you have Sheboygan and Plymouth. Iron Mountain is a fairly sizable town itself. So this is a little different in that most of the communities in this area are smaller, but there's a reason for that, and we talk about it in the history. So the southeastern portion of the county is right along Lake Michigan and basically is opposite of Door County and southeastern shore sits along the northwestern part of Lake Michigan's Green Bay. So in Ocano County, we have Ocanto, Pensaki, we have Little Swamico. There's a bunch of even smaller communities, Abrams and Brookside and Morgan and a number of others. But some of the more well-known ones are Lena, Ocano Falls, Klondike, Gillette, Suring, Breed, Mountain, Lakewood, Townsend. So again, lots of smaller communities that we're going to cover as we go through the different parts of, of the history. Excellent. So that is a great segue into the history. And it's kind of fitting that we're doing this right after the Keweenaw episode, because this is another one of the regions where our history goes back to prehistoric times. And some of the natives, Native Americans that we're going to be talking about today are probably some of the same very ones who were up in that Keweenaw Peninsula. So I guess without further ado, Dan, if you want to dive into that piece. Yeah. So, I mean, really what we talked about last time was 
some of the tribes that were mining, or, or again, we said mining is sort of maybe a strong term for this, but digging the copper out of the ground and or finding copper veins that were up at the surface in the Keweenaw, they didn't live there all year round. And so they would move, they would go south and trade. We said there was evidence of them trading as far south as Ohio. And we see evidence of that copper making its way into this area as well. And, and there was a pretty distinct part of copper culture that landed in O'Connell County, and it's because of something called the Old Copper Complex, which is a, a group of people who occupied the area prehistoric times. So we're talking paleo-native Indians at this time, and were thousands of years ago. So this is, this is like 4,000 to 2,000 BC. But there's effectively a large cemetery from these groups of people in the area. And with that, Many of the people who were buried there had copper artifacts along with them. The majority were utilitarian, but some, some decorative things, some jewelry, some of that stuff as well. But it gave huge insight into what they were using this material for and how far south it had made it. And it was really key for two reasons. Copper, like we talked about in the last episode, can be worked or cold worked without having to be smelted. And so they think the majority of these tools were cold hammered into the various shapes that, that they were made, which is important because it allows a much quicker uh, use of the material without some of the advanced uh, processes that would come about later. Um but they were really using it for, for all sorts of stuff from arrowheads to fish hooks to scythes to hammers, just all sorts of different things. So a really fascinating look back at, at what was the start of an age, effectively. Yeah, for sure. And again, this is so far back. I mean, the one website here says it could go as far back as 9,500 years ago. And so much like with the Keweenaw, we're going to kind of run into, we've got this prehistoric culture, and then there's a bit of a jump before we really start hearing about anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. These people are really living in the area in what's called the Middle Archaic Period. So again, we're going as far back as 7,500 years ago. Yeah, so 7,500 years ago. And then all the way up until 2000 BC. So you really have to think this predates like ancient Egypt. This predates ancient Greece. This predates, this is like even into cradle of civilization, Mesopotamia type era, right? So this is as early as it gets. Which is weird that we don't hear about it more. I mean, the fact that here in the United States, we have history older than Greece, like... Yeah, I think I think part of the reason for that, and, and don't quote me, I mean, maybe at some point we could get a native specialist or somebody who really knows a lot more about the history. We actually had a few friends in college who specialize in that now. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could talk to them about the reasons why. But I think the, the tradition of storytelling or the tradition of the way information was passed down in native cultures is a little different and was different for a longer period of time than it was in some of the areas in the Middle East and Africa. And so I think that plays a role why there's not more information about some of these groups from early on. I, I vaguely remember studying that a bit in college when we were 
when we were talking about it, but I'm, I'm certainly not the expert. Yeah. I think it definitely makes a lot of sense for a future episode for us to get a native expert on because they could touch on basically every region we're going to talk or every community we're going to talk about. So without belaboring that too far or talking about stuff that we might not be experts in, I don't know what else you wanted to share on that before we get into well, more you just, know, modern history. Yeah, and we will for sure. The one thing I think is so interesting about this is waterways were different during that time period. So in this middle archaic period or kind of prehistory as we think of it, the lake had a much higher variability in its water level as did a lot of the rivers and everything. So the site of this old copper culture burial ground was chosen because of its elevation because of water levels at that time. So we would not think of it that way now because waters receded to areas where, where this wouldn't even be an issue anymore. But we have to think back that that long ago, the lake could be, there's some estimates that say the lake could have been as high as 20 feet higher than it is now. So you have to think of how much further inland water was. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and the burial ground itself was forgotten for a period of time, apparently, because it was rediscovered just in the 1950s. Yeah. Accidentally. By, right. By a young kid. He was playing around in a quarry in the area and, and uncovered some bones. So that's a pretty crazy story to realize that you stumbled onto something that big. But yeah, I mean, to our last episode. So a few more artifacts that were found, they, they would find whistles they would find shell artifacts that were made out of river snails. They found copper fish hooks, copper arrowheads. And, and one thing, this is something I thought was pretty impressive too. If you look online, and we'll post the links for this, but there's actual images of these copper implements that they made. Mm -hmm. And they're not rudimentary the way you'd expect. I, I was really surprised to see that some of these even really early ones, they actually figured out ways to like core out the base of let's say a copper arrowhead so that a wood stick could actually go into the arrowhead rather than the arrowhead having to go into the wood or like they figured out a way to make the barb on the fish hook they figured out a way to create what we would think of as blood channels on knives or blades or things like that so that they wouldn't get stuck so there was there was a a pretty decent amount of actual engineering that went into this and to think they were able to create those implements by hand cold working is is crazy Survival is a good motivator. It is. It is indeed. <laughs> Agreed. Yep. So anything else on the natives before we get into another group that we will be talking about throughout many of our episodes, and that's the French explorers, which bring the fur trade in along with the Canadians. Yeah, absolutely. So no, I think, I think we can kind of leave that there. We'll talk a little bit about the historical site from Copper Country um, when we when we cover the live section, because it's something that you can actually visit. Awesome. So, yeah, I mean, really the next part of our story picks up. And, and this is one thing Nick and I had talked about at the beginning of this episode. Because Okano County is so many smaller communities that rose and fell and, and popped up and some of them grew and declined and grew and declined. And even multiple times, some of them were re-inhabited and then left there's not the unified narrative maybe that we see in some of our, our older towns that we've talked about in previous episodes. So it's a little bit more disjointed of a history here, but still really interesting. So we've talked in prior episodes about how Quebec was really the headquarters and the front, the forward operating area for French who were coming in. 
And this is another piece of that. Some of the same French explorers that were working their way into Wisconsin and, and then west, when we talked about parts of Green Bay, the Red Banks from the first episode, when we talked about Sheboygan County and then, then the Keweenaw as well, we're going to see that era kind of show up here. Yeah, and, and for reference, we're talking about the 1600s. Yeah, yeah, yep. thank you. Good call. So one of the first people to come into Okano area and really work on the mission projects with the natives in, in the area was Claude Jean Alloways. And people who are from Wisconsin will recognize that last name. There's actually, I, I want to say this right, is it a town that's it's a part of Green Bay, effectively. But yeah. is it is it a town or a village that's yeah. named after him? And the Z is silent. It's Alloway. Alloway, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Alloway is part of Green Bay. Green Bay is a is a unique metropolitan area where all of the suburbs are interchangeable with Green Bay addresses. So you can live in Alloway and use either Alloway or Green Bay address. De Pere is an exception, but Howard, Swamico, Hobart. All of those are interchangeable with Green Bay. And then somewhere like Hobart is actually also interchangeable with the Oneida Nation because that's their reservation. So if you live in Hobart, you can write your address as Hobart, Oneida, or Green Bay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. See, yeah. it's crazy. I know. And there's a lot of that in this, this region. So Alloway is born in France. So he's from South Central France. And he ends up graduating college, becomes a Jesuit, and then in... 16 like 50s he's ordained a priest of the roman catholic church and he goes over to quebec which seems to be kind of a popular path to take for some of the french at this time especially some of the french missionaries and then he kind of graduates up the chain fairly quick there so he he starts studying american indian tribes and he starts learning the languages and we talked about that with one of our prior missionaries too how important it was for them to come to the area and start learning some of the languages because you just didn't have the ability to do this work if you didn't speak multiple languages especially because they didn't have maps or boundaries so they didn't know where one tribe kind of started and ended very well until they were spending time in the area um and then, of course, as we pushed west, we rearranged those borders several times. Yeah, yeah, we kind of messed that up uh, along the way. So in 1660, he becomes the superior of the mission in Quebec. And he stays there for about another three years until he's named the Vicar General of the Diocese of Quebec, which would now be the entire central region of the United States. And so he's appointed by a bishop. This is kind of a big deal. The first bishop of New France appoints him. And then he begins touring the Western, what they would call the Western missions. And so it's 1669. So we're talking about uh, 10 years-ish after he gets to the area. He says the first mass in Ocanto, Wisconsin. And so he served as a missionary to the Potawatomi Indians there. And then also as trade increased, right, as, as more and more of it happened, the Menominee tribes as well began participating and converting to Christianity. I would love to talk to one of the native experts, if we do get somebody on at some point, about how that conversion process went. Because whenever you read the overarching histories, right, it just sort of says they met, they, they did a few masses or they did whatever. And then, then you see these tribes starting to convert over to Christian religion. 
I'm certain things were not that clean. Yeah. <laughs> and that's probably not how it actually went. It's, I would it's history according according to the people who wrote it. Right. right? Yeah. Well, and so, that's that's a big part. Yeah. And especially when you see the the you, you lose the human piece, right? When you're looking this far back in history, if you don't get into firsthand sources, you're you're kind of just hearing like, okay, this is what happened over this ten year time span and it was much messier than that in real life. So I would be very curious to know how that actually went. But as as the missionary work comes into the area, fur trade does as well. And so we start seeing French fur traders really working with a number of these native tribes to trade metal goods, especially. And this is interesting because we talked a lot about how some of the early paleo groups had, had copper right at their disposal. But now we're in an age where in Europe you have iron and steel implements that are considerably stronger than than like that. And so they're trading knives and axes and things that just are not readily available amongst the tribes, at least on first contact. That seems to change later on. But the fur trade continues for, for quite some time in that in that region. And it's worth mentioning that Alloway has is loosely related to another story of another French missionary and explorer that had a large influence on this area and also has a town named after him, and that's Jacques Marquette. Yep. And so when Jacques Marquette passed away, Alloway was actually assigned to kind of continue on the mission that he started. And and we're going to talk a lot about Marquette in the next episode, because we'll be talking about Marquette, Michigan, which was named after him. Yeah, absolutely. And so we are lucky to have some of Father Alloway's written history still preserved. And so I, I was not able to find an easy link to the firsthand source online, but we'll keep hunting for that by the time we post the show. And if we can't, then I'm certain it's stored in one of the university libraries somewhere. I was just going to say, I'm betting it's in a university somewhere here in Wisconsin or Michigan. Yep. So we'll figure out maybe who's got that and, and get that posted too, because that would be a really interesting firsthand source to to talk about. But yeah, I mean, his his mission definitely made an impact and there's a lot of stuff named after him. So the village of Alloway, like we talked about, the Alloway Trail on Mackinac Island, the Alloway Bridge over the Fox River, Alloway Bay near Superior, Alloway Neighborhood in Superior, the Alloway Township in Keweenaw County, which we talked about last last episode. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff named after this guy. Yes. <laughs> so else you want to dig into regarding the fur trade and the French explorers? It, it does make up a large piece of the history of this area. It does. It does. And as you, it's kind of like what we talked about last time as fur trade grows, right? So does community inroads to the area. They start getting a better understanding of, um, where the lines are between some of the native tribes, between some of the communities. They understand the geography a little bit better. They start to discover the natural resources. That knowledge will all play a role later on. But again, like we talked about in some of the previous episodes too, the thing that I think stops a lot of the progress kind of from like the 1600s until the 1800s is the fact that the French and the English were at war. 
And so you had France, France and England battling each other and French and English traders and explorers and everything kind of intermixing and, and vying for superiority in each area. And at the same time, as you get beyond the 1600s and into the 1700s, you've got the initial sparks and foundations of what will eventually become the United States forming along the East Coast. And so with the colonies being so focused on that relationship and everything as well, I think history just moved a little bit more slowly in this particular area because there was so much tumult going on yeah. east of here. And of course, some of those tensions didn't bleed their way over here. We had the French and Indian War mm-hmm. as a result of that here in the United States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So really the next data point to cover is that Okano County becomes a territory of the newly established U.S. in the Ordinance of 1787 as part of the Northwest Territory. So we talked about Alloway doing his work in 1669, and we're over 100 years later by the time this becomes anything remotely resembling what we would think of it as today. And you'll notice throughout our episodes, this region really was reshaped many times as far as territories and states go. Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, they were all kind of part of each other at different points and got switched back and forth a little bit here and there in certain areas. And and so when we talk about the UP, we've touched a little bit on the history of that. Kind of it got formed as, as part of those territorial formings and, and even disputes involving Ohio. And so some of this might be hard to picture with a, an audio podcast, but down the road, we plan on having more resources where we can kind of inv- visualize some of these things for you. But that's one thing definitely to keep in mind if it's confusing to you is the territories that were these states in the region that we cover, it just changed so many times between, I don't know, what do you want to say, 1700 and 1900? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're still talking about even into the early 1830s when when logging is really taking off and, and lumber becomes a primary resource. Wisconsin's still not a state yet <laughs> at this time. So it's very interesting how like Okano County actually as a county or as an area predates Wisconsin as a state. Yeah. And, and that's that's a weird thing to think about, but it's just the way it was back then. So Really, the 1820s becomes the start of where lumber and and timber become this primary resource, right? And you start to see a number of, at this point, both French and English and some other industrialists, explorers, resource gatherers making their way into the area. And a gentleman by the name of John Penn Arndt was actually the first one to build a dam and sawmill in what today we call Pensaki. So Pensaki was actually the first settlement in Okano County. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning, and this will be a repeat in many episodes because of the way that the region is shaped, but the huge forests of virgin timber, which is mostly white pine at the time, and some hardwoods like maple and oak were what was so attractive to them. And I know that's in particular in like the early to mid 1800s. Um, 
Well, it grows, right? As as it as the resource becomes known and industrial infrastructure to both harvest and transport it grows, it becomes a bigger and bigger deal and draws more and more people. But we did a pretty good job of almost wiping out <laughs> a lot of our white pine forests in the area. Yeah, we'll talk about cathedral pines in the live section, which is a part that was preserved that you can still visit today, so that's nice. But yeah, a lot of the communities in the Okano County that exists today were formed out of necessity during the logging process. For example, we're going to talk about Shoot Pond in the live section, which I'm rather familiar with because I, I worked right on Shoot Pond for a while. And it's called Shoot Pond, but really it's a lake. And that's because it was man-made into a lake so that it can feed into the Oconto River. And so they would. there were logging camps all along the Oconto River. And they were just numbered, simply numbered. And even today, you'll find roads, rustic roads up there and whatnot that are called like Camp 5 Road, Camp 2 Road, because they just had camps all along this river and they were numbered one through whatever. And they would usually fell the logs in the wintertime so that they could just push it on the snow and ice out onto the lake or pond. And then in the spring, when the water melted, the logs would start to flow down the river. And one of the issues they'd run into frequently were log jams. And so there were guys who their whole specialty was getting these logs unjammed. And as you can imagine, that's a really a dangerous feat. So they were well compensated. And these logging camps, everyone at the logging camp had their own jobs. You had the actual loggers, you had a camp cook, you had a camp crier, which was sometimes your camp cook. And the reason you had a camp crier is, we're talking 1800s mostly here, there wasn't lines set up for telegraph or anything like that up there for the most part. And so your camp crier would get on the roof of your camp and just holler down to the next camp and they would pass word along that way. And, and part of the way that I know this is from a story about one of those individuals who may be a legend. We're not sure if it's actual history or not because it's an orally passed story, but Ole Peterson was possibly a logger or He's a combination of characters that were one of these guys who went out on the logs and unjammed them with these pretty rudimentary tools by today's standards. And so when they needed one of those guys, they would just call down from camp to camp and he'd get the message and put on his gear and head up the river. But there really was a culture that formed around this and the communities formed off of that culture. But that river and rivers in general were so crucial to that logging industry. And that plays a huge role in why the communities pop up, like you said, where they do. And you can see that to this day. I mean, there's there's swaths of kind of just woods in between <laughs> where all these places are. So that makes perfect sense. It is interesting to think of them doing it during the winter. Talk about a, a rough day at work. Yeah, I, it's with the weather around here, it's kind of a horse apiece because you don't want to be doing it in the middle of summer either. Right. Because especially back then, hot, humid, buggy, no air conditioning, no yeah. bug spray, none <laughs> yeah. of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I, it the the winter and spring were were crucial for that logging operation. So one of the things I think is important before we like dive into the 1850s part of logging is we got to go back a little bit to the start of the 1800s. So remember how we talked about 
these areas being being kind of defined by all the different treaties and the counties being changed as far as lines would go and which communities were included in which part of whatever and how the municipalities were structured. Well, we start to see this playing a big role in the early 1800s. So there was something signed called the Treaty of St. Louis in 1804. And the Treaty of St. Louis seeds like a big part of this land between Illinois and Western Wisconsin to the United States. And, and it came from various tribes. And, and so some of the ones that, that this treaty went with was the Sauk and the Meskwaki. I'm, I hope I'm saying that one right. But it was a treaty signed and then pretty resented by the tribes. And this kind of goes back to what I was telling you earlier, Nick, when we were talking about, I don't think it was as clean as a Wikipedia entry or something would make it out these days. But the interesting part about this is Blackhawk, who is a sock leader from this time period is, is pretty peeved about this treaty. He's not a fan of it. And so this starts something called the Blackhawk war. And it was a conflict between the United States and some of the natives, especially from this sock tribe, and Blackhawk, and they were known as later the British band, and we'll kind of talk about why, but they crossed into Illinois, and there were some kind of ambiguous motives, but we got in a fight is more or less what it comes down to. The reason this is important is a guy named Henry Dodge, who was a U.S. House of Representatives member for the U.S. and later in the U.S. Senate. He was the territorial governor of Wisconsin, and he was a veteran of this Black Hawk War. Okay, so you have to imagine a little bit about what this person's perspective on the relationship with Native tribes might be. But he was really critical in negotiating something called the Treaty of the Cedars. And we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode too, but we go back to it again because it plays such a huge role in this whole area. So in 1836, they negotiated a treaty called the Treaty of the Cedars, and the Menominee Indian Nation at that time ceded to the United States 4 million acres of land. So that's an incredible area. But within that was the city of Ocanto. And so again, when we go back to like, why isn't there quite as clear of a history or why didn't lumber start till the 1800s? Same thing that we saw with the copper mining up north. It's because as these treaties started to come in place and these territories became part of quote unquote, the United States at the time, it opened it up for industry that just wasn't available prior You know, you couldn't necessarily take this stuff before because you would potentially be encroaching on a native tribe's land. You would have to fight if you were going to try to keep that space. And, And it was just a much more harrowing and difficult endeavor. So the Treaty of the Cedars was really critical for a whole bunch of the communities that we're going to end up talking about. But if you think of 4 million acres of land, that's that's pretty significant. Yeah. That's, a, that's a huge area. And so there's still a historical marker to this day that marks the spot where the treaty was signed. And it ends up moving a number of the Menominee Indians way to the west of, of kind of what's the Wolf River. So with that treaty, that's when you start to see people coming into the area and more formally setting up shops. So there were small sawmills and dams and things coming up before, and people were doing one-off logging operations here and there in smaller areas but but this treaty was really pivotal in bringing this in as an industry to the area 
Yeah, and much like we talked about mining in previous episodes, logging, people come in and set up shop based on where the resources are. And unlike the Keweenaw with the mining, when logging was done, a lot of these communities stayed in place. I don't know of any ghost towns in Okano County from the logging industry going away. Of course, many of these logging camps and stuff, there's no sign of them anymore. But for the most part, this area, and maybe because it's further south, so the climate's just slightly more tolerable, a lot of these communities just stayed in place and they just look different now than they did back then. Yeah, and it's interesting and it should be noted too that in addition to the European started lumbering that that we see go on and we talk about quite a bit the menominee after they moved actually did pretty successful lumbering themselves also so this was not only a european endeavor but a tribal one also for sure i mean to this day there's tribes who logged certain parts of their reservations or nations so definitely an important industry yeah, and I think the the bottom line here is, like we talked about before, is logging becomes the major market. At first, things are moving down the rivers because that's the most convenient way. Then eventually, things are clear-cut around the communities that are around the river, right? So if you're, if you're forming a logging camp on the river, you're going to cut the logs that are nearest to you first. So these are the first areas to get clear-cut, and then people have to start making their way further and further inland to continue to get lumber. So... With that, eventually it becomes more and more critical to start developing overland infrastructure, right? And we're seeing that that wood is going further and further distances to different markets over time. Mm-hmm. So at first it's used locally and then it gets shipped, but eventually we're working on building trains into the area. And, and that becomes pretty critical to some of the big things that happened in the 1870s that are pretty crazy. Yeah, so do we have anything left that you want to touch on leading up to the 1870s? One important one that became pretty big was the Holt and Balcom logging camp. And so, like we said, lumber really, logging started out as a smaller scale, more independent endeavor at first. And then as the treaties were signed and the land opened up, you started to see people from the east flocking to the area to do this work, and it became more of a formal industry the way that we would think of it today. And the Holt and Balcom name comes up again in our live section because that was the logging company that set aside the tract of land, which is now Cathedral Pines. And that's because Lucy Holt, who was wife to W.A. Holt, talked him into preserving it because she liked going out there with their kids. And so there's a stand of about 200 to 400 old white pines and balsam old growth that still are there today. Yeah. And, and the other cool part about this is the Holton Belcom logging company obviously owned a fairly sizable chunk of forested area. And so they became one of the more enduring and larger logging companies for quite some time. And their camp, one of their camps is still in existence today. Like you can still see the original bunkhouse building. And I believe when I was reading, it was saying that it is the oldest hundreds original lumber camp structure in the United States still standing where it was actually built. Like they've had other ones where they moved them into a museum or something, but yeah. And the, the site that I looked on, it actually is dated 1880. So you don't have any earlier 1800s options for logging camps. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. So I I just think that's an interesting part. And we bring that up because with that being one of the most uh, enduring organizations doing logging in that area, it it gives a little more context to why it would be cool to check out that still standing structure in the live section. For certain. All right. But before we get into the 1870s, there's obviously a pretty major event that happens in the 1860s, and that would be the American Civil War. So surprisingly, because O'Connor County is a little bit disparate as far as the communities and because of how far north it is, it might be a little surprising, but they did stand up several companies that fought in the Civil War, actually. So one of the first companies was called the Oconto River Drivers. And Nick, to your earlier point, that's a pretty fitting name. So they had a a saying that instead of driving saw logs down, they'd prefer to have a tilt with the secessionists and drive them down the Mississippi right into the Gulf of Mexico. So when the company waited for orders, they, they were paid a pretty decent stipend and had board and clothes. And then at one point, their commanding officer, the sergeant in the company, so not the commanding officer, but one of their leaders, gave the men 100 neat hand spikes designed for an ornamental parade. And they'll serve as an emblem of the former occupation of the men. So it's just really interesting. We saw this when we talked about the Sheboygan Armory, too. Remember that the rail splitters was part of the the idea behind the company that had been stood up? And the same thing is true here. They are taking their occupational history and making it a part of their their unit history. And so a second unit was formed in October of, of 1861, and that unit was called the Oconto River Sackers. And the company name came from the term to sack to the rear of a log drive, which meant to follow after and roll the logs that had lodged or grounded. So like you said, they were clearing them. So um, so the sackers followed the drivers. And then a third group was stood up. They got the cool name. It was the Northern Dragoons. <laughs> so eventually at one point, because Ocano County had, had kind of punched above its weight class when it came to recruiting, George Ginty, who is the editor of the Oconto Pioneer, had said that nearly 400 men out of 700 voters from 1860 and before Marinette County was informed enlisted. So think of that, ye outsiders who imagine that the county of Oconto is so far out of creation that her veins of patriotism are dried up. So even they at the time knew that they had a reputation for a little bit of the boonies and kind of the backwoods, Sure, but they really stood up an impressive number of people for, for being as small as they were. So certainly, yeah, kind of a crazy thing during the civil war. But with that in mind, there is still lumber and logging going on during this time. And obviously during the civil war, construction is going on and communities are being linked in the north, and they need resources in ways that that maybe weren't as urgent earlier. And so you start to see Ocanto being a stop along Chicago's northern rail routes, and it becomes a designated hub at one point. And that is kind of the critical context that brings us into what's going to happen in the 1870s. So we just have to think at this time there are many people working to lay down rail track further and further north. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned Chicago because that drives us into our our next major event, which is in 1871, the Peshtigo Fire. And 
You may or may not have heard of it because it actually happens at the exact same time as the Chicago fire and a few other smaller fires in Michigan. And the Peshtigo fire itself, though, was actually far bigger land-wise than the Chicago fire was and just sounds horrible. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> so we'll dive into the Peshtigo fire a little bit here. So admittedly, I like we talked about at the beginning, I didn't really know much about this, and, and you're absolutely right. I grew up further south, and so we definitely heard about the Chicago fire and all the lore that goes along with this, but this happened on basically the same day, and it sounds absolutely awful. So they believe that as a result of laying this railroad track, they were clearing... So a common, a common tactic to clear areas during that time was called slash and burn. And they were slashing and burning some of the just brush and foliage and everything that was in the area where they were going to lay down these railroad tracks. And they started a brush fire. And it was apparently an uncommonly dry season. Um, and it must have been because we saw fires erupt all over the place. This wasn't just here. It happened in Michigan, across Lake Michigan. It happened in Chicago. It happened in Door Peninsula. It happened here. So this was obviously not a very good time to have fire. But started a brush fire. A cold front came through and the winds kicked up and just turned this thing into an inferno insanely quickly. And from the firsthand accounts, it's just nuts. They actually had some scientists that were reviewing kind of from a modern perspective what would happen. And based on what they know about the fire, for it to be classified as a firestorm the way that, that it was described, they said it would have temperatures as high as 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which that's like blast furnace hot, at the head of winds of up to a, over 110 miles an hour. I mean, that's literally a hurricane of fire that just sounds terrible yeah and the town of peshtigo was completely obliterated so yeah not only the town of peshtigo but a whole bunch of areas around it and so there are a bunch of first-hand survivor accounts where people talked about surviving the fire by either jumping in the peshtigo river or going into wells people would get big heavy coats and soak them in water and put them over their head and try to stay as low in the water as they could and even though the river was frigid people still described it heating up from the fire basically jumping the river and they said because of a couple of the bridges the wood bridges that were there and because of some of the updrafts that existed the fire actually blew right over the top of the river in some areas and lit the other side of pesh to go on fire so bad place to be yeah, well, and it even jumped over the bay or around it or whatever. Yeah, well, so interestingly, I thought that too when I looked at the map. I guess what they were saying is they think that it was kind of simultaneous that, that some of the firestorm or the ember or whatever that had gone out maybe went south and it started some subsequent smaller fires south and it didn't go over the bay. It actually kind of started secondary fires around it that okay. then creeped up into Door County, but I didn't know that either. So, and... What I thought was so sad about this, <laughs> this didn't occur to me at the time, but they said that because the fire was so total, so complete, and, and so devastating to this area, word didn't get to some of the bigger cities. So like Madison, for example, where, where head government would be located and they'd have a chance to send some assistance for a couple days. And by the time they heard about this happening, 
there was already a bunch of resources that had been sent to Chicago because everybody knew about the Chicago fire. And so they were looking in the areas where the Peshtigo fire had happened and they, they eventually had to do mass graves in some areas because there was nobody left alive to identify many of the deceased parties from the fire. And to this day, they don't know how many people yeah, were killed. Right. The estimates range and, and we've seen everything from a thousand to twenty five hundred. So, I mean, they didn't have good records. That's the other problem, too, is there's no records of who was living in the area because everything burned. Like, everything yeah, burned. Including so, the records. <laughs> right. If they had census records or if they had check-ins or anything from records from the logging companies, like, it all went up. So, there, there was just nothing left. Yeah, a huge tragedy. I, I, th- I think it's one of the articles we looked and said how many million acres. Yeah, it was, it was two... It was 2 million trees. I got that part in about 1.2 to 1.5 million acres of land. Okay. So again, that's just a massive area. And you can see it on the map. If you look at the pictures, I mean, you, you could drive probably a good 40 minutes just within the area that the fire engulfed. Yeah. Insane. So definitely something for the history books. And unfortunately gets overshadowed by the Chicago fire just because of the size of Chicago and the importance at the time. But that is the end of the 1800s. And then we start to get into modern history. I didn't have any notes really after that. I don't know if you did Dan before we wrap up the explore section. Yeah. I think the only interesting part for me that I caught that was, that was pretty crazy is the same that was true in the civil war was also true in world war one. And then later world war two. So I actually found a World War I service members list from Okano County. It is 14 pages long. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and, and obviously World War I was just a massive event in world history, so that kind of makes sense. But at the same time, again, this is a fairly small community remote region, and to know that they they put that many people out there is is kind of nuts to me. Yeah, I wonder if it played into the fact or played into this that th- the careers that people up in that area had. I mean, these are all mostly loggers, so they're hardy dudes compared to maybe ones who are in the city and a little little softer because they're bankers or store clerks or whatever. Yeah, I mean, these people definitely probably would be used to a a little bit harder life for sure. And interestingly enough, I saw this too. There's also a pretty decent number of female residents who had served actually in the World War II era, both in the WAC, in the Navy, as nurses, and in in a number of other areas. But I thought that was pretty interesting, too. And that is actually listed on the O'Connell County websites, their history section. You can see the entire list of of women in service from that era, and most, most, again, from World War II. Yeah. And so I think that that pretty much wraps up our explore section. We are going to have some tendrils kind of reach into the lift section as usual, where we're going to talk about Cathedral Pines, Copper Culture State Park, and Quartz Hill. They all kind of play into some of the history. But uh, unless you have anything else, Dan, we'll move on to live. No, let's dive into it. So moving into the live section... I'll start out talking about Cathedral Pines just because I did cover quite a bit of that in the history section. Like I mentioned, that Holt and Bolcom Logging Company owned this chunk of land, and the wife of one of the owners asked him to to leave it. And so he did, and 
to this day, we've got two to 400 old pines and balsams in there. And this is a area that you can visit. It's either a, I think it's a county park, either county or state park, but you can enter it for free. You can hike around back there. I highly recommend it. It's a really cool area and you can see some of those really huge old trees that it takes a couple of you putting your arms around in order to get your, get all the way around it. Yeah. And I mean, it's beautiful. You and I were there and I mean, you can tell as soon as you walk into it that it's old growth. I, like it, it reminds me of a Midwest pine version of what you see in the old Sequoia forest, you know, really interesting. Yeah, and it's near Lakewood for reference, the town of Lakewood, if you want to look at how to get there. There's another location that is a little bit north of Lakewood that is called the Quartz Hill Trail. And it's there's there's two pieces, one on the east and one on the west side of Highway 32, which kind of goes right through the middle of a good chunk of this county that we're talking about. And many of the communities that we're going to reference today because Dan and I have especially been around the communities of like Wabino, Lakewood, Townsend, Mountain, all, all that whole area there. And so in Surring. So we'll, t- we'll be kind of focused a little more heavily on those areas. So this one is, is right up in that kind of Carter area. And it's cool because going back to our native discussion, there's quartz crystal deposits here and the natives used to quarry the quartz there with to create some of their tools and now you are no longer allowed to dig or collect but you are able to hike through the area take pictures the forest service kind of maintains all of that and it is a cool area to check out especially for kids and then that moves us into the last of kind of the historical ones at least that i want to talk about i don't know dan if you have other ones but the copper culture state park you alluded to in the explore section. So I'll have you kind of dive into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So like we mentioned, it was discovered by accident by a 13 year old kid playing around in the quarry. And, uh, you know, this whole area was rediscovered in a giant cemetery there and they found all this stuff. So many of the artifacts are actually on display. There is a house, a traditional Belgian style farmhouse on the property. It's one of the national register of historic places now. Um, And that serves as kind of the foundational museum site for this area. But if you're interested in this, you can go there. You can check out what some of these copper implements looked like. There's obviously people there much more knowledgeable about the history of these paleo-native tribes and how this stuff was used. So a very fascinating area to go visit. Excellent. And another, I guess you could kind of throw it into the history piece a little bit because it is notable, is the Mountain Lookout Tower. And it's notable because it's the last remaining original fire tower of 19 that were in that Nicolay National Forest area. They restored it in 94, and it's the only one that's fully intact, and you can actually climb up it to this day. So another great activity for, well, really anyone, individuals, couples, families, is to go check out the mountain lookout tower and climb up that. This time of year would be perfect because you could see a ton of the colors from the National Forest up there. So easy, easy visit that I recommend checking out. Yeah. And I mean, the views are absolutely beautiful from up there. They really are. Just a word to the traveler. If you are uneasy about heights, this is not the most robust structure. Like you definitely can see through it. So (laughs) yeah, if you're a little uneasy about heights, take that in mind. Certainly. 
And we touched on ShootPond briefly when I was talking about logging. And ShootPond is kind of located in the northwest-ish portion of the county around Mountain there again. And I bring it up because there's we're going to talk about in Devour and Imbibe a couple of different places that are really close to there, as well as YMCA Camp Unalaya, which is located on Shoot Pond. And that's where my reference comes from. I worked there for many years and it's been around since the 1930s. The initial patch of land right on the Shoot Pond shoreline was donated in the 1930s and, and it's been, it's grown since. But Many kids, hundreds of kids come through every summer. They also have family programming in the other seasons and outdoor environmental education where schools go up there on field trips. During the off seasons, spring, fall, and winter, you are able to do cabin rentals as well. And it's a great place to stay because they've got all of the basic amenities that you need right there. And it's kind of centrally located in that shoot pond area where again, there's a couple different things around there. There's a campground county campground right on shoot pond that you can stay at. And a lot of the devouring and buy places we're going to talk about are in that general area. So the, the campground or camp, Unalaya would be good, good places for people to look at for lodging. If they're, if they're going to look to stay in that area. And shoot pond, that's, you know this, I haven't actually been there, but that's where the Slippery Rock Falls is, isn't it? Yeah, so on the opposite side of shoot pond from the Y camp, near the dam that leads into the O'Connor River, and we talked about how that came to be with the logging, there's a rock face that those who are brave enough jump off into the lake, and then there's also a little waterfall that is in one place kind of shallow and smooth enough that people use it as a little bit of a natural water slide. And so people will either drive there, you can drive and park by the dam, or you can take a kayak or canoe or whatever kind of boat you want. There's a little spot you can kind of park right there near the dam and hike in. And it's not a very far hike to get to what they call slippery rock. And then the other one would be jumping rock that's on the actual shoot pond. Yeah, that looks kind of cool. We'll have to check that out. I've done both. It's fun. Of course, we're you know not giving any specific recommendations, so nobody hurts themselves. Make sure you, you do these things responsibly. We are simply educating. We are not advocating for these activities. Exactly. That's right. And on the, also on the note of Shoot Pond, there is an event that happens in early February. It's usually, I think, the, the first weekend of February. And that's the Mountain Fire Department, which is a volunteer organization, has a, a fundraising event called fish rama And that is a family-friendly fa- event where the shoot pond f- completely freezes over in the winter, so you can walk all the way across. So if, for example, you're staying at Camp Unalaya, you can walk all the way across to over to the park where this takes place, which is next to, there's a couple of bars and stuff in the area that we'll talk about in just a bit when we hit Devour. And it's really cool. So they have all these little ice fishing shanties and stuff set up and the fire department grills out and they have, there's something in the Northern Wisconsin and the UP called a meat raffle that is very popular. (laughs) And you enter into this little drawing. Sometimes they'll have like a wheel you can spin and you can win meat. And it's anything from like jerky, hot sticks, bacon, sides of beef. Sometimes, I mean, you could get like a half a cow. It depends on the organization that's doing it. But Mountain Fire Department's been doing this every year for a long time. And my dad and I went 
one time. It was it was it was good fun. So I recommend checking that out as well. And I think that exhausts my list for the live section. Dan, do you have anything else that you wanted to add in there? I think uh, technically it kind of falls into Devour too, but I think we wanted to talk a little bit about the Sweet Memories candy shop. Ah, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. So this is a cool place to stop, whether or not you have kids with you. I have taken people there just about any time that I've had friends or family up in that area with me. And it's a candy shop in the town of Lakewood that is an entire house, a two-story house full of candy and chocolate and ice cream. (laughs) And they have pretty much every candy you can think of, like stuff that you may not have even seen since the 90s or 80s. And so I highly recommend checking it out if you are a fan of the sweets. It really, it's like every kind of candy I have ever seen or heard of. Yeah, I I mean, agreed. And the, the homemade chocolates are really good. Enjoyed those. Found gummy shish kebabs that my four year old was a huge fan of. They still sell candy cigarettes, which you can't find. Again, not advocating. Just a little trip down memory lane. Candy cigar or the bubblegum cigars. Yep, the chocolate the cigars candy. too. All of it. Yeah, that stuff was great. So it was cool to see that. And they do have some unique gifts. They've got a big Jelly Belly wall. Yep. You can get all the Jelly Belly flavors. That's fun. And you and, can mix and match them. Yep, yep, which is great. And they do have just some nice gifts as well. I I was able to find my wife a really nice bracelet there. And they've got some, you know, stickers if you want nostalgia stuff or or magnets for the fridge for your travels or toys. Toys. Yeah, just all sorts of little Uh, stuff. I think they have a wall like full of Beanie Babies still. There you go. Yeah, great place to stop if you have kids, but even if you don't. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. It's worth it for five minutes. And you can ride an ATV there. I didn't know that. Yeah, we did it. Weren't you with us? I was not with you. Oh, no. you weren't with us. Yeah, you can you can drive there, but you can there's an ATV trail that goes right by it too. That is one thing we should definitely mention in the live section. This area, this county, especially that northern piece in the National Forest, and we'll see this again in multiple episodes, especially when we talk about the Wisconsin counties bordering the UP and most of the UP. The ATV and snowmobiling culture is its own thing. And so the majority of the restaurants and bars that you'll find in this area are on ATV and or snowmobile trails because during the appropriate season, people will just take their recreational vehicles to these places. Yeah, that was a totally new experience for me. But the what second or third time we were up there, we had some friends who had their ATVs up and got to ride around a little bit. And it's cool, man. It's fun. It's a blast. We went to the grocery store and the hardware store and the <laughs> candy shop. We did all kinds of stuff on the ATV. And it's real weird to know that you can like go mudding on your way to a grocery trip. Yeah. And then, you know, just drive normal back home. It was it was pretty cool. So that was a new experience for me, but you're right. It's definitely a big deal. I mean, you see them everywhere there. Yeah, and we'll I think we'll choose there's we're going to do an episode on the Gogibbet County area in the UP and we'll probably focus in on the snowmobile culture for that one because on the border there I think it's Iron County, Wisconsin, that's below them. Don't quote me on that. But in Hurley, that's right on the border, and in Ironwood in the UP, snowmobiling is giant. I mean, like, the population doubles during snowmobiling season, and we'll talk all about that. 
Anything else for Liv, Dan? No, no, I think we're ready to move on. All right. Moving into the devour section, there are some great places to eat in this area, and I'm excited to talk about them. I see, let me look here. I think we've we've got one spot that isn't an actual restaurant, so we'll talk about that first, and that is Meat Skis, which is a meat supplier that is located on Highway 64. So that would be the main route to get from Highway 141 over to the mountain area to Highway 32 if you don't take 32 up from Green Bay. And kind of in the middle there is Meat Skis, which it's a meat supplier. They've got, you know, all the different fresh meats that you can think about and hot sticks and all that kind of stuff too. But it's also a little bit, a little grocer and they've got a couple gas pumps there just because of where it's located. There's only so many places people can go around there to get stuff. Yeah. I mean, this is a really unassuming location. Like if you were driving and you didn't know the area at all, I mean, I remember the first time I passed by it, I thought it was part of a little business or a factory that like was not a grocer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but it, it's just sort of right at the end of the T on the road there. Great meat, though. Good hot sticks and steaks. And I've had a, a few different things from them over the years. Yeah. So from the 1950s, it was originally Johnny's Market, started by Johnny Johnson and operated by his siblings and now newly remodeled, offering the same great services and quality sausage. But it is really good. I had some delicious meat sticks. They had dilly beans that were fantastic. Big fan of those. So I like it. It's a good spot. Yes, definitely worth checking out. And moving into places, restaurants that you can actually go eat at. Let's start with the Rustic Cup. So we'll start with that because that's it's more of a breakfast place. They kind of keep some odd hours, but they're always open early in the morning. And this has changed names and owners a few times over the last decade. For many years, it was the Shoot Inn, and then it was the Shoot the Breeze Cafe, and then now it's the Rustic Cup. But thankfully, it hasn't changed a whole lot when it's changed hands. They have really good classic breakfasts, decent portions, decent prices. The only thing that isn't above average is the seating capacity. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not the biggest establishment. It's but a really small place, so you want to make sure you time time it well if you're going to go get breakfast there. And they don't do reservations as far as I know. Agreed, agreed. But yeah, I mean, everything was great. And it's it's relatively quiet. It's like a nice place if it's early. And you and I definitely had some some breakfasting to do the last time we were there. But food was great. They have eggies in a basket. That's a bonus. <laughs> Service was really good and everything was pretty quick. So yeah, I mean, no complaints. Yeah, I, I've gone there many times for breakfast. If you're staying in that shoot pond area, it's probably one of the best places you can grab breakfast around there. And another place, it's now called the Water's Edge Bar and Grill. That is on Anderson Lake in, in the mountain area there. And I haven't verified this recently, but it's, it's a cool little bar there with a nice view of the lake. And they used to do a breakfast buffet on Sundays on Sunday mornings. So hopefully that is still the case and I encourage you to, to go check out the breakfast buffet there at the Water's Edge. It's kind of cool. They got a little dock across the Highway 32 from them. You can take your, if you're on Anderson Lake, you can take your boat over there and park it and head over into the, the bar there. 
So now moving on to dinner. Let's talk about the Weatherwood Supper Club first, because that's kind of in the same area that we've been talking about some of these other places. This is probably one of my favorite supper clubs. Steak. And that's saying a lot because living where I live now and where I have lived in the UP in northern Wisconsin, I've been to a lot of supper clubs. And we talked about the supper club phenomenon when we talked about Iron Mountain Kingsford in episode one. But this is something that's kind of unique to northern Wisconsin and, and upper Michigan, where it's a restaurant that usually opens up like four o'clock at night. Sometimes it also doubles as a bar. They all have a bar in them for the most part, but usually it'll open up like four o'clock. Depending on the supper club, you may want to do reservations. And Weatherwood isn't one I you don't typically have to worry about reservations, but definitely Friday and Saturday nights are going to be busier than, than the other nights of the week. And they're only open a handful of nights of the week. But in the supper club kind of culture, you go in, you sit at the bar and order a drink and look at a menu. A waitress come or waiter comes over, takes your order, and then you just hang out at the bar until your table is ready, meaning your meals are almost done. And then they'll walk you over to the table and in most supper clubs, they have a salad bar. This one is no exception. The salad bar at Weatherwood is really good. They got a nice selection of veggies and stuff for your salad. And then they usually have a couple of soups on and different bread and cheeses and all that. And I really enjoy the the salad bar there. And then for dinner, just like most supper clubs, they've got steaks and pastas and chicken and fish fries. Friday night, fish fry. Yep. yep. And everything I've had there has been excellent. I've gone there for many, many years. I've always enjoyed dinner at the Weatherwood Supper Club. Man, I'm looking at pictures, and I want to go back right now. So first, it definitely has the right interior, right? It's got the wood color throughout the entire establishment, and the bar is nice and dim. They've got, like, Winchesters on the wall and a giant moose that looks over the the entire dining area. And... I think you got steak too, right? But I had a delicious steak there, and I'm not kidding. It was one of the best steaks I've ever had. That's including fancy steakhouses in like Chicago and New York and Miami. So one of the best steaks I've ever had. It was perfect. The grilled onions and mushrooms were amazing. The baked potato was good. I want to eat that meal every night. (laughs) Yeah, I again, just like the Sweet Memories candy shop, Weatherwood is a place that anytime I have new friends or family come with me to that area, it's someplace I'm going to take them. It's just great. And the service is always really good. And more often than not, I feel like around happy hour, they do double bubble, which for those who are not familiar means you get two drinks for the price of one. And they'll serve them both to you right away. So you'll <laughs> you'll be double fisting your drinks until one of them's gone. There's a certain segment of the population that's really good for, and there's a certain segment that's really not good for. Yeah, most certainly. And before we head too far north in our supper club journey, there is one that neither Dan nor I have been to, but from others I've talked to in the area, it definitely deserves an honorable mention, and that's the boarding house in Surring. And there's, along with having good food from what I've heard from everyone who's been there, it has a bit of history to it as well. It dates back to 1896, and on their website, they have a little blip about the history. It's only a couple paragraphs long, so I'm actually going to read it right here. 
This frontier-style boarding house saloon was built in the year the Chicago and Northeastern Railroad was cutting a line through the Virgin Pine Forest from Gillette, Wisconsin to Wabino, Wisconsin. It first served as a boarding house for the railway construction workers and later for the crews and lumberjacks who began to harvest the region. The building was constructed by a Menominee Indian, Native American, from the nearby Menominee Reservation in 1896. Somewhere around 1910, the name Hotel Wisconsin was attached and remained for many years. A livery, which for those who aren't familiar is a place to keep horses, was added about the same time and traveling salesmen stayed at the hotel and rented rigs to call on the surrounding farmers and others. As the north country of Wisconsin developed, first with trapping and lumber exploitation and then a little later from farming, these hotel boarding houses saloons were very significant parts of the fabric of the northern frontier. This particular enterprise has endured for over a hundred years and is in a physical condition that is a good statement of the early Main Street architecture and life and style of the past. I want to go there. Yeah, I can't believe I never made it there all the years that I, I lived and worked in the area. But looking at their menu, we've got standard supper club fare, some nice appetizers, Quote, mouth-watering steaks, everything from 6 to 20 ounces. Nice. Prime rib, surf and turf, seafood on Fridays. Of course, we've got Jim's menu and salad bar. In typical supper club, old-school Wisconsin fashion, liver and onions. You can get liver and onions. You can have it, Dan. I'm not going to order it, but you can get it. <laughs> So, yeah, unfortunately, we haven't been there. We're going to have to add that to the list, but I have heard nothing but good things about that in Surrey. So moving a little further north than most of the places we've talked about in the Live and Devour section, we're going up to the Lakewood area. And I know I said this about the Weatherwood, but I'm going to say it for this one too. Maiden Lake Supper Club is one of the best supper clubs I have ever been to. So I'll set up the scene for you. Maiden Lake Supper Club is, of course, on Maiden Lake. And the Supper Club sits on a hill overlooking the lake, and they have a terraced back where there's a mini outside bar set up. And so if you're there during the right season, they'll take you out to the back terraced bar area, and you have a seat with magnificent views of the lake where you enjoy your cocktail, look at your menu, order, and wait for your table to be ready. And then you head into the restaurant, which the majority of the tables have at least somewhat of a decent view. Obviously, the ones near the windows have a great view of the lake. And again, all of your standard supper club fare, great drinks, great food, great service. Even in today's age, we're recording this in 2022 during the fall. Everyone is hurting for the most part staffing-wise. They had a plethora of teens and young adults working there. We never had to wait long for service. And again, for individuals, for couples, friends, family, I mean, I highly recommend anyone who gets to this region checks out that supper club. This one, I do recommend making some reservations or being careful when you head out there though, because they do get really busy. Yeah. And the relish tray was solid, which oh, is a yeah, bonus. Forget Don't forget that. the relish tray. But no, you know, you're really right about this. So my my experience contextually was we went to the Weatherwood when it was a little colder and it was raining and the night that we went was a little rough. So like it has that great, cozy, like warm wood hearth fireside feel to it. 
Lakewood is your opposing perfect midsummer evening destination where you're like sitting on the deck with a beer kind of atmosphere. So both of them are really, really great. And, and I would definitely have a cold weather and warm weather focus for me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. If you can hit it in the summer or early fall, that's the time to, to check out that one so that you don't waste the beautiful views and, and terraced. I mean, I almost felt for a little bit like we were kind of like at a resort somewhere. Oh, yeah. It seems like you're not even in the area. Well, and yeah. because Maiden Lake's really beautiful and a little bit long, so you get these kind of vista views that you can't see because it's forested all around there. So until you're sitting on that deck, you really can't see anything of the view. So it's it's spectacular. It's great. Yes. And heading into Lakewood proper and then up and out of town to the northeast is Wabi Lake. And on Wabi Lake, there's actually another YMCA camp. So Unilai is the Green Bay Y. Camp Nana Bosho is the Appleton or Fox Valley YMCA's camp. So to be fair, I'll give them a little shout out as well. And on that lake also is the Wabi Lodge. And now this doubles as a lodge and a restaurant supper club. And of course, there's a large bar in there. Probably one of the bigger bars in the area. Now I think of it size-wise. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of room in there. And again, great supper club. Dan, I don't think you ever actually did dinner there with me. No, but we did have an appetizer and some wonderful Bloody Marys. Yeah, they make great, great drinks there and good meals. They've got the old fashions and the salad bar. And then similar to Maiden Lake, without the terracing, there is a deck that goes off the back of the Wabi Lodge and you have a view of Wabi Lake from that entire deck that you can sit out and enjoy your meal there if the season permits. Very friendly staff there as well. We've never run into issues with service at the Wabi Lodge. Yeah, no, it was it was great. So I think, Dan... That ties up the devour section, unless you had anything you wanted to mention. No, no, I don't think so. We really haven't had a bad meal there, like in the entire area. No, yeah, there's so much good food up there. I, you know, maybe because it's so tourist heavy in the in the summer season, and then with snowmobiling. Yeah, but, but they bring their A game for yeah, sure. They definitely do. All right. Moving into Imbibe, I will confess off the top that I don't think we're going to do this section justice because there are a lot of bars in this county, and we're only going to talk about a handful of them because I like to talk about ones that I've actually been to and know that I can highly recommend. So I definitely apologize for some of the communities that we're cutting out because a lot of these, again, are the, the Mountain Lakewood area because that's where I frequented the most. But as we increase our capabilities production wise and expand the Northwoods distilled line, we're going to be revisiting some of these communities, especially because in these early episodes, we're kind of combining large chunks of area. I mean, Keweenaw Peninsula is two counties combined. And then here, Okano County is, is really spread out. So we will definitely consider revisiting this area and adding more to it. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, and we've had that conversation for a few of our episodes that it may be worth it to go back and do a dive into another segment of each place, right? Because there's just so much in so many of these communities. And ideally, without giving away too much down the road, we'd like to have some type of way for listeners to interact more. And we'd love to hear your suggestions. And then we can plan our itineraries when we visit these areas. We'll have a starting point with all of your suggestions and we can hit all those places up and then add the ones as appropriate. So the first place that we're going to talk about since we just left to the Lakewood area, we'll talk about the most Northern one that I have on my list here. And that's Mulligan sports bar and grill. A little caveat at the time of recording this restaurant and bar is for sale. But that being said, a lot of the bars and restaurants in this County are for sale just all the time, but they keep operating regardless. So hopefully that's the case with this one, but there's a couple who owns it. That's owned it since it's been Mulligan's and it's been one of my go-tos again for visiting when people come in from out of town, they've got good bar food. They're famous for their bloody Mary's. They put the whole, you know, kit and caboodle in the bloody Mary's and the mix is good. They've won awards at competitions with it. And they have a great indoor and outdoor seating area. It's actually right down the lo- road from Maiden Lake Supper Club. So if you're putting together an itinerary, you could stop here for pre-dinner drinks or maybe end your night there after the Supper Club. Yeah. And this is a solid place to get... I'm trying to remember. They had pickled onions and I want to I want to say artichokes, but it's not artichokes. What are the Brussels sprouts, pickled Brussels sprouts. And they had like fried cheese strips and a couple things that were all in the Bloody Marys. It was some interesting stuff. It was pretty good, though. Yeah, definitely worth checking out if you're in the area. So moving along, we've got two bars that are in the shoot pond area that I wanted to touch on. And again, there's 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 plenty more around here, but there's two that have been kind of places that I've hit up multiple times. One of them is right on Shoot Pond, and that's the Everbreeze Resort. And again, in the winter, the pond freezes over, and people from all around the pond will just walk over to the Everbreeze or take their snowmobiles. And like Maiden Lake, it has a terraced back where you can sit out and dine or have your drinks. This is a little bit more of a bar than it is a restaurant, but they do have they do serve food, and it's pretty good. But for enjoying a drink... In nice weather, nothing beats that that terraced patio in the back there. They also will have live music during the summer on that terraced patio many times. So it's it does tend to be one of the more hopping areas or one of the more hopping bars in the area. And seems sure. to be a big stop off for the snowmobiling crowd. Yes. Yep. And that is for context as well, right down the road from the Shoot Pond campground. You could take an ATV or even hike over from the campground over to the Everbreeze. So in that same area on Highway 32, right next to the Weatherwood is Skinny Dave's. Skinny Dave's. So I don't... (laughs) Skinny skinny Dave's defeated us once upon a time. Dan and I had a night that we refer to as the massacre at Skinny Dave's. Yeah. 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 And the massacre was our brain cells. Yeah. Skinny Dave's is <laughs> Skinny Dave's is a great bar. Um, we, you know, one thing I will say though, this is actually cause it happened at Skinny Dave's that night. And then also every time we went for a couple drinks elsewhere, 
we had a better time talking to all the random people we met in the bars there than I remember in most other communities. And these are mostly locals that he's talking about. Yeah. Too. I mean, they were really friendly and yeah. we, we had some, I mean, we were joking with each other, you know, some of them were kind of jesting with us and giving us a hard time and stuff, but it was, it was funny and it was, it was a great time. And I remember that at the Weatherwood, I remember it at Skinny Dave's, we talked to the guys from the pipeline for a while. I mean, every place we've gone now that I think of it, we had a great experience just kind of, you know, being around everybody too. But that also causes, you know, a couple more drink orders to happen than normal. So, yeah, we were staying directly across the street from Skinny Dave's. So we had no driving to be concerned about. And we were definitely not concerned. But I will say Skinny Dave's, as far as bars in the area goes, they have one of the better selections of different beers. They also have an outdoor garage area that they built that's enormous. I call it a garage area because they've got multiple garage doors that they'll open up during the warm season, and they'll have live bands out in that area, and they do have a bar out in that area as well. Skinny Dave's gets packed on nice summer days where they have a live band playing. Yeah, I mean, even on the days that were pretty bland, I mean, you and I went there once or twice on, like, rainy Tuesday nights, and it was still... There were people there. I mean, it's 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 the place to be. Yeah. Locals and tourists alike frequent Skinny Dave's, so that's why we definitely had to give it a shout-out. Now, if you head further down south on 32, Dan alluded to the next location we're going to talk about, and that is the Pipeline Bar and Grill. This is another one that's changed hands a few times over the years and is also currently for sale, but they're continuing to operate it. One of the better bars for food. Every time I've been there, the food, the portions are enormous, no matter what you order. And to to Dan's point, I've always had friendly bartenders there and just a good time overall. Yeah. I mean, we were there, we've been there a couple mornings. We usually tend to go there on our way out of town just because it's, you know, on the way out of town. We had the breakfast burritos. Remember those, like the most they, recent iteration. They were ridiculous. Oh my gosh, <laughs> this place was incredible. So they had these huge breakfast burritos that were just smothered in like a burrito mashup gravy sauce, which sounds horrible, but it wasn't. It was really good. And um, same thing, good Bloody Marys. You can get good Bloody Marys just about anywhere in O'Connell. They don't, they don't mess around when it comes to Bloody Marys. Yeah, <laughs> that is for sure. So I think that, what, did you have anywhere else in Imbibe that you wanted to talk about, Dan? No, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, you know, like we mentioned, there's a couple great places to have a relaxed drink at the restaurants and supper clubs we talked about. So kind of covered that earlier, but no, no others. Yeah. And again, we will revisit this area because I know there's a lot of bars we missed. We kind of covered one specific to the Lakewood and Mountain areas. But we'll get up there and, and talk about I know, for instance, Townsend's got a couple good bars. And it doesn't get mentioned because it's technically not in Oconto County, but just like a mile or two north probably is the Carter Potawatomi Casino. So that's, of course, a, a destination to check out. And then there was one other thing. Thing. Oh, Crivets. So Crivets also is not in Ocano County, but is one of the bigger towns in the area. So that will be, depending on where you're at in Ocano County, might be a town that you would head into to get groceries and supplies. And again, when we revisit, I would love to talk more about Ocanto and Ocano Falls. We barely touched on those and Ocano is the county seat, the namesake of the county, but we need to get a little more visits into those areas. 
So anything else you want to talk about today, Dan? No, I think it sounds like we're going to have an episode number two from this region. So. I think I think you're right. Yeah. All right. Well, then that being said, we thank you so much for joining us. You can find the podcast on any of your favorite players and please subscribe rate us give us a review we'd love to know what you think and it helps us get noticed we also have northwoodsdistilled.com or if you go to novemberdelta.xyz there is a page for each one of these episodes and we have links for all of our historical research links for every location that we talk about every restaurant and every bar we talk about of course in these regions a lot of these places don't have their websites so in those cases you might see like a facebook page or something but we try to have a link for each of the things we talk about and we have them separated into the different four categories explore live devour and imbibe to make it easier for you to locate what you're looking for next month is going to be a big one that's going to be marquette michigan and we have so much to talk about that one no doubt will also be a two-parter down the road but look forward to going back up to the up and talking about marquette on the next episode thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next month (music) 